0: Welcome to Linux Action News, our weekly take on Linux and the open source world. This is episode 72, recorded on September 23rd, 2018. I'm Joe. And I'm Wes. Hello, Wes. Thank you for joining me again. Chris might be back next week, we'll have to see, but uh, I'll have to put up with you in the meantime. (laughs) (laughs) So let's start with some news from Mozilla. They have released Firefox Reality 1.0, which is their virtual reality browser.
1: You can get it today for the HTC Vive, Oculus, or a Daydream headset.
0: Now, unfortunately, I don't own any of those. Do you? Uh,
1: I have one of the little off-market rebranded headsets, so I did install and give it a go. It wasn't a great experience for me because my
0: hardware was so bad, but it's an intriguing concept. It is intriguing, and I think that it shows that Mozilla don't want to be left behind on this one. They were left behind on the mobile market, to quite a large extent, certainly with Firefox OS, which never really took off. Okay, it's kind of carrying on as KaiOS, but it shows that they are taking this VR thing seriously. And it might be a fad, it might not be a fad, it might be the future, who knows? And I think that they have to kind of do this, don't they? They have to be there at the beginning of it.
1: Yeah, if you're not in at the stage where it feels like, well, maybe this is a risky bet, who knows if this is going to take off anytime soon, well, then you're, you're probably joined too late. And right now, the VR space is pretty dominated by some heavy, large corporation-like
0: entities. It's nice to see Mozilla getting an open source foot in the door early. It's a little bit bare bones at this stage, though, isn't it? There's no bookmarks, for example, which, does that really matter? Does anyone use bookmarks? Okay, I use bookmarks quite a lot, but uh, I hear that some people don't. But that is coming soon, hopefully. It looks like some of this work has been possible
1: thanks to their new Gecko View component. We talked a little about that last week in LAN episode 71, and that means they haven't had to redo a bunch of labor to create this. Instead, there's a common core that they can share with Firefox Focus and some of the other Firefox technologies that they already have on these platforms.
0: And there is a privacy mode as well, isn't there? I wonder what that might be used for.
1: Hmm. I can think of quite a few things, Joe.
0: <laughs> yes. Well, let's move on. Let's talk about AMP, Accelerated Mobile Pages. Now, Google has come in for a lot of criticism regarding AMP, including from me, about how they have had quite a tight control over it and are basically forcing the mobile web onto their servers and onto their standards. They have always maintained that it is open source and supposedly open standards, but The governance model was very much top-down from Google. Well, now they have decided that they're going to go for a new governance model.
1: They say they want this new model to explicitly give a voice to all constituents of the community, including those who cannot contribute code themselves, such as end users.
0: Yeah, they certainly want to try and make it more inclusive. Um, I'm not sure about individuals, but they certainly want more companies to get involved with this so that it is not just a purely Google project at least that's the impression they want to give here. Sounds like a couple
1: reasonably sized players have signed on, people like Washington Post, eBay, and Cloudflare. That's a good mix of e-commerce sites, publishers, and then actual hosting platforms. One of the biggest problems, though, has been so far, Google's really the only one that serves a big AMP cache. So all of your AMP pages come from Google. Will any of these other sites step in? Cloudflare looks like one that could be a possibility, but I don't know, Is two of the biggest providers really that much more diversity?
0: Well, it's certainly a good start. And Cloudflare, I would say, almost certainly have the resources to do this. But I would like to see it being much less centralized because at the moment, almost all AMP traffic goes through Google servers and therefore they have all the metrics on that, all the data. Um, The thing is that the underlying technology is really good. It's taking the mobile web Back to basics. It's stripping out a lot of the stuff that you don't need and making it super fast. And everyone agrees that that is a a good idea. It's just the implementation that has been the problem so far. And potentially with this new governance model, getting more companies and people involved with it, we might get to the stage where it's not all being funneled through Google's servers. But then you do have to ask what's in it for Google at that point.
1: Yeah. You know, how will this work if if there is a big federated list of various caches you can use? How do you pick who has control of that marketplace and and why?
0: And are they going to be given equal footing on the Google search list? Because that's really where all the traffic is driven from.
1: Right. And that's been one of the main things that made some publishing platforms feel like they've really been pushed into supporting AMP, even though they do have such a loss of control.
0: It's also good to see that they are taking inspiration from the likes of Node.js and Kubernetes and looking at forming a foundation here, which really would separate it out from Google.
1: All the verbiage sounds right to me. I think there's some good principles here, and everything they're saying is the way I would want to see an open source project run. Now, there will be an AMP Contributor Summit next week. Maybe there we will start to see, is there really interest from the broader community? Is AMP a technology that can be saved?
0: Well, fingers crossed. Another technology that originally came from mobile, the Ubuntu Phone, Ubuntu Touch, was Mir, And that is not dead, contrary to popular belief. It's actually reached a 1.0.0 release this week.
1: 1.0 is a big deal for just about any open source project. At first blush, I was a little confused about just what was so important about this release. I really think it's XDG shell support being stable. You can build on that, you can depend on it, and really that means you can tie into the Wayland world and build on top of Mirror.
0: Well, exactly. That's the exciting thing here. It's potentially going to allow a lot of other projects to hook into Wayland and, as we know, the X server is just, it's so old, there's so many security issues, Wayland is the future, it is the present for a lot of people on Fedora, for example, and we know that Ubuntu tried it with the 17.10 release but then reverted back to X for the LTS. And I got some messages from unofficial canonical PR man, Martin Wimpress, about this. And he told me that the Marte desktop are planning to use this to offer Wayland support. And uh, he told me to expect more about that in the coming weeks. And at the canonical sprint that they've just had in Belgium this week, a minimal Marte shell was demoed using this Mir and Wayland combination. And he also told me that potentially LXQ might be going down the same route, although I did ask someone in that community and uh, he was very much silent, refused to answer on that. So I think they're still deciding. But it's it goes to show that this technology could potentially open the door to Wayland for a lot of other desktop environments and people making distros. I think that's been one... One difficulty moving past
1: X is it's just been such an entrenched
0: ecosystem.
1: And while Wayland has a lot of neat technology baked into it, it just hasn't necessarily been the right abstraction level for a lot of existing platforms. Now, the you know, the big guys, Gnome and Plasma, not a big deal. They've implemented their own extensions and made it work. But we haven't seen the same kind of proliferation of various desktop options that we've had in the good old days. As they put it, Mirror has both sensible default behavior and a simple yet powerful API. So that sounds like just about the best building block I could hope for.
0: Do you think it's a little bit early for a 1.0, though? Is that just a statement from them saying that it's not dead?
1: It does seem like it is a little bit of a statement. And just having that Wayland extension support seems like this is a signal to the community that, hey, look, we still exist and we're something that you should think about using.
0: Well, something that you shouldn't still be using, at least not for much longer, is Ubuntu 14.04. But if you are, don't worry, because you can pay Canonical, or you will be able to pay Canonical, for extended maintenance. And this isn't a real surprise, is it? We saw this with 12.04, and now, again, we're seeing it with 14.04. No doubt we'll see it with 16.04. But it's of note, because it shows that that obviously went well for them, 12.04. It must have paid for itself at least. And it shows that Canonical are very serious about being a serious enterprise player and being able to compete with the likes of Red Hat for the huge long-term support that they offer.
1: Right. Clearly, this is marketed at big, slow-moving enterprises who do want to remain in compliance. But, you know, it's just a lot of work to upgrade your distro sometimes, guys. So why not spend a little more money? It looks like it is part of Ubuntu Advantage, so if you're already paying for that service, well, you can. most plans include ESM already. Or, if you want to buy in quantities of 1,000 machines or above, it's $50 per node per year.
0: Which is not a great deal of money compared to the money that you would spend upgrading it. I mean, most of us think... Okay, you know, one server or whatever, going from twelve oh four to fourteen oh four or, you know, fourteen to sixteen, it's not a huge issue. But if you've got a lot of machines or if you are running certain applications which are just going to break, there's a lot of slow moving infrastructure out there that just cannot upgrade. And so that's why you end up with these Red Hat deployments that are ten years old. And if Canonical are really serious about IPIing or potentially selling the company, then they need to be competitive with the likes of Red Hat. And so here we are. It's interesting to note that they say um, contact Canonical Sales to start planning for Ubuntu 14.04 end of life or talk about your Ubuntu 12.04 estate. Because when they announced the 12.04 extended uh, maintenance, they said that it would be good through April 2019. They didn't say to April. It's kind of confusing language. They're a UK-based company mostly, and that's kind of an American way to put it. So does that mean it was going to end? Then it looks like it isn't. It looks like they're going to continue to support 12.04 potentially, which is kind of a big deal, isn't it? That's um, a long old time that they will have been supporting it.
1: Yeah, you're right. It is confusing over on their their advantage page it says ongoing security fixes for the kernel and essential packages through april 2019 but who knows quite what's going on i'm sure if you're a customer they'll provide you a little more details it does seem pretty pragmatic to me because well unfortunately this is going to happen people are going to take time to move up these distros and a lot of them will just be unpatched and won't have this access now if you're a big enough customer to get it that just means there's less machines out there running without patches and that makes me smile
0: yeah, it's definitely a good thing. But it's not the only news coming out of Canonical this week. There was a blog post by uh, Will Cook, who I know from Late Night Linux, about running Ubuntu VMs on Windows and how that has been made much, much easier. It looks like they've done some some
1: digging in the Ubuntu report data and found out that actually a lot of people are using Ubuntu as a virtual machine. Now, that's probably not a huge surprise, And for me, I was used to the experience to get in something like VirtualBox, and having used Hyper-V a bit for some of the other distros I like to play with, well, the experience just hasn't been quite the same.
0: But now it's going to be a first-class experience uh, with improved clipboard integration, dynamic desktop resizing, and shared folders, and an improved mouse experience so you can um, move between the guest and the host. It seems that they've worked with Microsoft here to just make it, very smooth, very easy experience.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. Microsoft actually has contributed back upstream to the XRDP project, which is an open source implementation of Microsoft's own remote desktop protocol. So it looks like some of the new Microsoft in ball here contributing to open source, helping make open source software run better on their platform.
0: And this is yet more evidence of Microsoft and Canonical cozying up together, isn't it? We started with the subsystem for Linux, which was launched with just Ubuntu available. And now we're getting this Hyper-V integration. It feels like there's a real relationship building there. And I think that that is going to worry a lot of people in the community.
1: Yeah, I mean, they even even say in this article, or, or Will says... Our friends over at Microsoft. So you can tell, you know, these barriers have been broken down. They've worked on, collaborated on many projects now. So it's not a relationship that easily falls by the wayside, especially when both sides of the relationship stand to stand to benefit here.
0: How do you feel about this? I mean, does it worry you? Does it make you uncomfortable? do you remember the Microsoft of old or do you believe the hype that Microsoft has changed now?
1: I mean, I've definitely noticed a lot of changes just in in the, the ways they're spending their time and the people who work there now, whether or not it's permanent, it's hard to say, right? I mean, corporations are fluid. They're made up of people that leave and come and go and, and cultures change over time. But I do think we should be at least somewhat open-minded to appreciating the Microsoft we have at present and be willing to work with them where it makes sense. They've shown they're willing to put in some time and effort to open source. And I don't think that, we shouldn't think that they are some angel that no longer has their own interests in mind. So we should view it through, you know, they want to make money and, and have a good place in the market. There just might be some opportunities to op- for open source to benefit at the same time.
0: Well, they're following the money, aren't they? I always say this, the money's in open source. And keeping people on Windows means they're more likely to tie in with Microsoft services like Azure. And making... The Linux experience on the Windows desktop, flawless. Well, that's a good way to do that, isn't it?
1: Yes, I know there is some worry that you know there might just be people that don't need to run full Linux anymore, or they won't need to run it. You know, booted from bare metal. And, and that may be very true, but there's a number of people stuck on Windows already that that can't do that. Maybe their enterprise doesn't let them install things like VirtualBox. Well, Hyper V is a lot better now, or they have been forced to use an external VM running on some other infrastructure and suffered for that. So, in a pragmatic sense, yes, I am a little bit worried that there might be there might be less people out there booting up from a from a live USB for the first time. But if they're still getting to experience the joys of using open source technology, especially on the command line, that makes me happy.
0: Well, I mentioned the Windows subsystem for Linux, and we've had more news about that this week. There's a new distro available, and it is the first distro that has been specifically built for the Windows subsystem for Linux, and it's called WLinux. It feels a little strange even calling this a Linux distribution. It's
1: certainly a distribution of open source software, but it's, it's not even, at this point, intended to run on a real Linux kernel.
0: Yeah, it's funny that, isn't it? That it's everything but Linux, and yet people still call it Linux. It's almost like RMS was right, isn't it? Calling it GNU slash Linux, um, and him saying that Linux is just the kernel. But yeah, I spoke to Hayden Barnes about this today, and he is the developer of W Linux, and he has got a very pragmatic approach here. He's taken Debian and customized it to work as well as it possibly can on the subsystem. And one of the first things that he did was remove systemd. Get it right
1: out of here, Joe. You don't need it on Windows.
0: Well, apparently not, no. In many ways, this seems
1: like a first, a distribution focused solely on the subsystem. There's a lot of ways left where the subsystem is just not a complete implementation of the whole kernel interface. So it might make sense to see this tailored, updated. They even talk about how they might be able to respond to some certain security issues or other bugs that are present in upstream software. Patch them here before they get fixes all the way back in upstream, which, as you might imagine, patches specifically for running on the subsystem, well, they don't always get prioritized.
0: Well, I asked Hayden what sets this apart from standard Debian, which, of course, is available on the subsystem. And he said, well, apart from being made from some parts of debian stable and some from debian testing it's also the customizations that he's made here that mean that instead of just kind of sticking a linux distro on top of windows it really is designed from the ground up to work with it and that's how he justifies the 20 price tag
1: right and i think it, it markets something that you really have to be a a Windows subsystem user to think about. Because, you know, for me, I might just install Debian or Ubuntu because I I know Linux, I like working with a full Linux distribution. But I think for a lot of subsystem users, that's not really their goal. They just want to have access to things like developer tools, which are pre-installed on WLinux. They don't want to have to futz around with trying to get graphical apps working when they might not be a Linux graphics expert, which, hey, not all of us are. So if you're willing to just you know, shell, out, shell out $20 to know that you can get all of the developer tools you might need for, your, let's say, your day job or the open source project you're working on without having to leave your com- the comfort of your
0: Windows workstation, well,
1: it doesn't seem like that much.
0: One thing he did say regarding the price to me was that in various other countries, the price is going to be lower or even potentially nothing. He mentioned developing countries that would be cheaper, um, which... Uh, It's interesting that in the UK, it's uh, only $10 rather than $20. So apparently, we're a developing country. (laughs) And you're finally
1: recognizing it. That's good, Joe.
0: (laughs) It does seem like there is a a fledgling
1: community building here. Um, They're trying to set up some paid bug bounty programs. And it sounds like they've actually paid out some bugs already. So that money may be going right back into the community.
0: Yeah, and it's interesting that they're focusing on the, the graphical apps as well, which are somewhat possible... Um, in a kind of hacky way, but um, they, they're really kind of doubling down on that and making it work with an external X server, which um, just a quick mention for Flatpaks are running on the subsystem as well now. Um, Alexander Larson, who is um, the kind of lead dev on Flatpak, tweeted about this this week. that He said it's got some hacky workarounds, but it basically works and showed some screenshots of it, which It was inevitable at some point this was going to happen, but it's pretty cool to see that the Linux community are just doing it for the sake of it, just for the fun of it almost.
1: Right, I mean, you just can't stop us once you give us a playground we can hook into. Those POSIX APIs that we know and love, well, software and tweaks are going to be the result.
0: All right, well, let's end with a story that broke as we were recording last week which I'm kind of glad that we had a whole week to digest this because it's pretty big news, isn't it? And that is that Linus has decided to take a break from kernel development. We don't know exactly how long for, but uh, it's at least for the rest of the 4.19 cycle. And this has caused mm, a bit of a stink on the Internet this week, would you say?
1: Oh, my yes, Joe. And at the same time, or or really shortly before, I think, well, the old code of conflict has been
0: replaced with a new contributor covenant. Yeah, now this new code of conduct based on the contributor covenant, that is a very standard code of conduct, isn't it? It's used across a lot of open source projects. And it kind of brings Linux into line really with the the rest of the industry. Before it stood out as this kind of separate thing where Linus could just do whatever he wanted, be rude to people on the mailing list and say all sorts of offensive things and get away with it. Whereas now he pretty much can't do that anymore. And that's why he's taking a break. He said in the email announcing this, this week, people in our community confronted me about my lifetime of not understanding emotions. My flippant attacks and emails have been both unprofessional and uncalled for, especially at times when I made it personal. In my quest for a better patch, this made sense to me. I know now that this was not okay, and I am truly sorry. I'm going to take time off and get some assistance on how to understand people's emotions and respond appropriately. Now, that was the first thing that I had heard about it, and then I learned about this new code of conduct. And I was trying to put together what exactly had happened here. And then on Wednesday, there was an article in The New Yorker, and that article was primarily focused on the lack of women in the Linux kernel development community and how it has been hostile to them. And in the article in The New Yorker, it said that they had reached out to Linus and, by the looks of things, the foundation as well, in advance of publishing it, saying they had plenty of examples of him being hostile to women and other people. And it seems that that is what has triggered this. Clearly, there's been
1: conversations going about these matters for really years. But that article brought it all to a head, probably in some ways to try to manage manage the PR around it. This new agreement was kind of pushed into place. There's a number of developers who, at least in theory, agree with some of the principles in the in the code. And as you say, it is adopted in a number of other large, successful open source projects. But the way it was just adopted so abruptly, without a big community-wide discussion, it also doesn't sit well with a lot of other
0: people. Well, the funny thing is that it doesn't sit well with people on both sides of the argument because there are people who are saying that this is politics invading the Linux kernel and that we don't need this and everything was fine before. But then you have people on the other extreme saying that this doesn't go far enough and that it's really just paying lip service to the issues that are underlying here that have been festering for a long time. And the fact that anyone who is in violation of this code of conduct gets reported to a committee that are all men. So if you are a woman or you know transgender or whatever, you are not represented on that board of people who are supposed to be sorting this out. And so it's just a real mess of strong opinions and that's kind of why I'm glad that we had this week to think about it but even then I still don't know exactly where to stand on this whole thing
1: I think it's difficult because this sort of large community culture change takes a long time to fully happen and we're still in that awkward quiet period after the after all the announcements and all the trauma what will really matter is is how does the, how does the technical advisory board actually function in this new role? What sort of disagreements? What sort of violations get reported, and how are those dealt with? Is this probably something we're just going to watch over the next months and years to come?
0: Yeah, definitely. But there's one thing that is clear to me, and that is that politics has become involved in kind of development now. And whether or not you think that's a good thing or a bad thing, well, that's up to you, dear listener. But we are now in new times, aren't we? The politics have come into this world, like it or not. And it's it's going to change it. And whether that is for better or worse, it really just depends on people's perspective, I think.
1: Yeah, people's perspectives, actions, and if, if the kernel community can find a way to embrace these changes without a lot of collateral damage, and if, you know, are people's intentions good, or does this become just another way to have more flame wars on the mailing list?
0: <laughs> yeah, well, we'll soon see about that. Well, this is a story that is not going to go away, and I have a feeling we may well be talking about it in future weeks. So if you want to stay up to date with all of the developments there and with the rest of the Linux and open source world, then go to linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe for all the ways to get new episodes.
1: And you can go to linuxactionnews.com
0: slash contact for all the ways to stay in touch. We'll be back next Monday with our weekly take on the latest Linux and open source news. I'm at Joe Ressington. I'm at West Payne. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you next week.